visitors and our guests, our longtime attenders. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, if you would take a moment, perhaps at the end of the service, to fill out one of those brown cards at the back, place it in the black basket, and uh, take a beautiful covenant mug. We would uh, really appreciate that. So we're going to be finishing up our series in the book of Colossians called Alive in Christ. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 7. Before I move on, though, I want to show you guys this bad boy. So some of you may have been lost on your way to church because there was no sign out front. There's a reason for that. That sign served its purpose for many, many years. It helped people find Covenant Church for a few decades. It served its purpose, and now we want to have a little bit of a change. So this is the sign that you guys will see out there in a couple weeks. And it's visible from both coming from the south and from the north as well. So that's something that uh, we're really happy. It kind of signals uh, something, some freshness with regards to covenant. And people can, can find us because we get calls, people all the time who aren't sure where we are. So this will be helpful. I want you guys to think of your favorite big budget movie of all time. I'm talking about that movie that took a lot of time, a lot of money to make. For some of you, it's The Avengers. For some of you, it's Guardians of the Galaxy or Avatar. For some of you, it's Star Wars or Star Trek. There's a lot of them out there. These movies cost a ton of money to make. Some of these movies cost over $150 million to make. A lot of others cost $200 million. I was reading that the most recent James Bond movie cost between $250 and $300 million. So these are like really huge expenses that it takes to make these movies. But a lot of that money goes to pay the cast and the crew. Do you know how many people actually work on a Hollywood movie? There was a study done a uh, few years back, that showed that between 500 and 1,000 people work on the set of a Hollywood movie on average. And if you look at these blockbuster films, the number can increase to just around 2,500. And in fact, the record for the most cast and crew to work on a film belongs to Iron Man 3, which employed over 3,300 people to make the movie. And generally, you see about 20, 30 employees on screen, depending on the type of movie that you see. You mainly just see the actors and the extras. But the fact remains that what you see on the screen is just a very small percentage of the work that it took to make that movie. When you read Colossians or any other book of the Bible, you think, well, you look at the great men of God who single-handedly built the kingdom in the early church, Peter, Paul, and Luke. But what we fail to realize is there's a huge team of folks who work together in order to push the gospel forward into the world. And Paul chooses to end his letter to the Colossians by giving a shout-out to these folks. So we're going to finish up our study in Colossians and look at what Paul has to say here about teamwork and what it takes to reach the world for Christ. But before we get into our text, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning that we can come together as a family, as a body, as a team, to worship you, to find our ultimate hope and our joy and our satisfaction in you and you alone. I pray that you'll illuminate your word to us and that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the various truths that you want us to learn and experience this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So Paul this in uh, Colossians 7. He says, Tychicus, it's a great name, will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So right here in this passage, you got two people. You got Tychicus and you got Onesimus, two guys who love the Lord. And the first dude, Tychicus, it's a great name, I love saying it, is someone we've run into before in Scripture. He's the one who delivered Paul's letter to the Ephesians, as Paul says. And Paul tells Timothy that Tychicus um, will be a messenger to him as well. And it's the same thing with Titus as well. You see Tychicus pop up all over the epistles. And Tychicus, he functioned as Paul's messenger. Now remember, Paul's in prison right now. He's in chains. So he kind of needs a helping hand getting these letters out. But not only is Tychicus a messenger for Paul, he's a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul's not pretentious at all about his position as God's special apostle. He doesn't say that Tychicus is his personal messenger, in fact. That may have been his function, but he chose to call him his dear brother, his fellow minister, fellow servant in God. And that's quite an honor to bestow upon somebody else. So for Paul, Tychicus is his equal in ministry. Now something else that we observe in this passage is that Paul isn't disclosing certain details about his circumstances. He's going to let Tychicus do that uh, when the time comes. And the reason's probably pretty simple. His hand's probably getting tired of writing. And that sounds like a lame excuse. But in fact, as we'll see later, it's actually not. So trust me on that one. But I think another reason he isn't disclosing certain details is, if, is because if the Romans got their hands on this letter, they could come after Paul and after his entire gospel uh, operation. So Paul's being smart. But keep in mind, too, there's a lot in this letter that snubs the Roman Empire. Paul lifts Jesus high above everybody else, including the emperor. And he tells the Colossians to live in such a way that subverts the order and the roles in the Roman Empire. So Paul trusts Tychicus to deliver this letter to the Colossians and that it will get there safely. But Tychicus isn't alone here. He's with Onesimus. Now, Onesimus might ring a bell with some of you. He's the slave that ran away from Philemon. He's the center of the book of Philemon. And Onesimus actually became one of Paul's colleagues in the ministry. Now, the circumstances surrounding Onesimus' uh, conversion and ministry with Paul are kind of vague. But you see that Paul trusts Onesimus enough to send him with Tychicus, and he has the utmost respect for him and his ministry. Now, I think it's really cool that these uh, characters kind of pop up all throughout Scripture. You can see the overlap, the weaving together of Paul's letters. And what's really neat is that you can tell that Paul works with these people all the time. They're a team that comes together in order to accomplish a goal. In this case, the goal here is the faithful proclamation of the gospel through encouraging the saints. So already you can see that Paul believes that ministry should be a team sport. We often think of Paul as this incredibly lonely missionary who did his own thing, got shipwrecked for Christ and beaten, but he still maintained his boldness. And part of that is true. 
But Paul was wise, and he chose to surround himself with people who could help him in his ministry. It takes others to help you keep your focus in ministry. And Paul surrounded himself with folks who could be an extension of his pastoral ministry and serve alongside him in proclaiming the gospel to the known world. So Paul begins this section as his final send-off. He lets the Colossians know about the many folks who are thinking about them. And he moves on to say this. He says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Justice also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have proved a comfort for me. Aristarchus is another great baby name. You can call him Starkey if you want. He's someone that you see all throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, we read that Aristarchus is a Macedonian, Thessalonica, who was with Paul during this crazy riot that went on in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Luke mentions that Paul and Aristarchus went to Rome together. And in Acts chapter 27, it says that Paul, yeah, I'm getting my my chapters confused. They also went to Jerusalem together. So Paul and Aristarchus traveled together a lot. And it also says in our text that him, that Paul and Aristarchus were actually prison buddies. And we can presume that he was also exposed to the different kinds of troubles that Paul was exposed to as well. And from that, we can also assume that Aristarchus was completely sold out for Jesus. And Paul says that Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends his greetings. Now, Mark's an interesting guy. Paul mentions Mark in Galatians and in Corinthians. And it's probably the same Mark, because there's like 20 of them in the New Testament, who's mentioned in Acts probably about five times. Now, this is especially interesting because in the book of Acts, you read that Paul and Barnabas had a major disagreement over Mark, and they went their separate ways. And the argument was whether or not Mark could actually go on this big journey that they had planned. Barnabas said yes, Paul said no, and they parted their ways. And the reason is because Mark ditched the apostle when they were in a place called Pamphylia. So he basically abandoned the cause of the gospel. We don't know why other than he just did. And in Acts 15 it says that Barnabas took Mark with him and Paul took Silas with him as well. But now, as you're reading Colossians, Paul and Mark are reconciled together and they're co-laborers with one another. It's a testament to God's grace that enemies can now become friends and partners in the gospel. Now, Paul basically says, he may or may not come to you. Now, I don't think that's Mark's rebellious spirit at play here, but I think it's Paul's indicating that Mark's maybe or maybe not, maybe he's going to make it, maybe he's not going to, depending on whether or not he survives his long journey to the Colossians. And Paul mentions someone who's named Jesus, not the Jesus we worship, but a Jesus called Justice. And this is the only reference to him. Uh, he's just a, a, a normal guy named Jesus Justice. We don't know anything about him at all, so I'm not going to speculate, speculate. But Paul says, interestingly, that these guys are the only Jewish converts with him and his company, and they bring him comfort. 
Now, this verse is really significant because Christianity originally started as a sect, a, a, a very small part of Judaism. But now, according to Paul, Christianity isn't just a Jewish movement anymore. This gospel movement. And the Greeks and the Romans are coming to know Jesus at an astounding rate. For Paul, the fact that there are very few Jews in his company of ministers is a good thing because it demonstrates that the gospel is spreading like wildfire across the known world. But there's also a little sadness in Paul's voice because his own people that he loves are not embracing the gospel the way that he hoped they would have. But he's comforted in the fact that he does have a few Jewish brothers in his life who know Jesus, and that gives him hope for his own people. And if you want to dig a little deeper into this dynamic of Paul, we can talk after the service because it's really interesting. So just to recap, these people with whom Paul is collaborating in order to bring the gospel forward, and they're completely committed to the cause. He goes on to say that Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ, sends his greetings, who is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras is one of those guys that was with the Colossian church at the very beginning. He was one of their co-founders. And Paul gives him, he bestows upon him the highest title in the kingdom of God. And that's the title of a servant of Christ. When Paul says that, as he does in our passage, he means that this dude literally walks with Jesus and serves him with his whole entire being. And what we read about Epaphras is that he wrestles in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. And he prays that they would stand firm in the will of God, confident and assured in faith. Remember, the Colossians, they had their theological struggles. They were drawn to things that weren't Christ, and it was leading them astray in some different areas. But the picture here is that Epaphras is spending every waking hour of his life on his knees in prayer for these people. If you look at the topic of prayer in Scripture, you'll see that we're exhorted to pray for a lot of things, for, for healing, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for the lost. But right here, you see Epaphras praying for the Colossians that they would continue to mature in the faith and keep their eyes fixed exclusively on Jesus Christ. I want to challenge all of you guys this week. Will you add this church, this body to your prayer list? We're a solid church. But we need folks who will be on their knees praying for us every single day. Because as I mentioned last week, there's power in prayer. And that's what Paul means when he says, Epaphras works hard for you and for the folks in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He means that this is a man who prays all the time. Prayer is work. It's discipline. It takes faith. Faith that God is listening and faith that God can and will move. And Epaphras has all of that, so he spends all this time praying constantly on behalf of the growing church. And Paul closes his greetings by telling the Colossians that their dear friend Luke, the doctor, 
and Demas, Demas sends their greetings. He says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, y'all know Luke, right? He's the doctor that wrote the Gospel of Luke, obviously, and the book of Acts. But Demas is a little more obscure. And what's discouraging is that in the book of 2 Timothy, you read that this guy, Demas, actually abandoned the faith because he loved this present world too much. We don't know if he was into money, if he was into women, or anything else like that. We just know that he put the world above Christ, and as a result, he fell away from Christ. It's a sad story. But it goes to demonstrate that walking away from the faith is very possible. Demas was one of Paul's great colleagues in ministry. We don't know anything else about him apart from that. And yet he walked away from the faith. That's why you have people like Epaphras praying on their knees daily so that people would claim the name of Christ and continue walking faithfully with him. Now, I don't want to get into into a big debate about whether or not Demas was saved or not. There's a time and a place for that. But people can and do walk away from the faith. And we got to be careful that we're digging our noses into Scripture and praying as we should, and worshiping as we should, and fellowshipping with a body of believers that can keep us accountable in our walks with Christ. Because the more we do these things, the closer we grow to Christ, and the possibility of walking away diminishes. And Paul goes on to send his greetings to the church in Laodicea, and to a woman named Nympha and her house church. Now, this reference to Laodicea is kind of interesting, and we'll chat about that in a, mi- in a minute. But what's really neat is that Paul specifically points to Nympha as a person who holds a church in her house. Now, this is kind of unusual because women back in those days, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, didn't really own anything. But for Nympha, to own her own place means that she was either a widow or she was loaded. Either way, she was a generous woman because she led this church in her house. It's kind of a really neat thing that you see there in Scripture. But Paul's not done yet with his goodbyes and his greetings. He says this, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Is it in there? Okay. Now, this is one of those verses that baffles scholars a little bit. What's this letter from Laodicea that Paul talks about? It's a mystery. But I will say that most scholars believe that Paul's referring to the letter to the Ephesians. What the churches would do back then is they would circulate these letters uh, to one another because it would encourage the body and because there was an understanding that these letters were written to specific churches, but they also had applications across the growing body of Christ. And the things Paul said to one body would have applicability to another. So when you come across this passage in your own reading, just remember that this was a common practice back in those days. And Paul's shout-out list is closed with a a man named Archippus, who has this mystery that he's received from the Lord. And again, we don't really know what this is. But when Paul says that Archippus has a responsibility to fulfill this ministry from God, 
that he needs to fulfill it, but in general, the entire Colossian church needs to fulfill it as well. We don't know what it is, but Archippus needed to fulfill it, and so did the entire church at Colossae. So Paul's a little vague right here, but I won't dig into it. And he ends by saying that it is he, Paul, who has written this, mainly because he probably would have had somebody dictate the letter from him, but he chose to write this letter with his own hand. And his last desire is that the Colossians would remember his chains and keep him in their prayers. So you look at this passage, and it sounds like a bunch of random kind of commands, all right? And there's also a certain amount of mystery that surrounds the passage because we don't know a lot about some of these different kinds of people. And it doesn't seem to be teaching us very much either. But I think there are a few implications that we can draw from this passage that have applicability to us today. When you're a Christian, you're on a team. Yesterday, we had this big staff meeting here at the church where leaders of various ministries, we got together and, and shared what God was doing and where we want to see these ministries go in the future. And I got a chance to kind of reiterate our vision and know Jesus, make him known. And as I was doing that, uh, something clicked in my mind, and I started to think about just how diverse this group really was. You had men and women, some younger, some more seasoned, we'll say that, You had myself, you had a lawyer, financial advisor, psychologist, children's ministry director, a graphic designer, a few educators, an insurance dude, a recruiter, an administrator, and a few techies. And I began thinking about how diverse this ministry team really is. And then I thought about every single one of you guys in this room and how each of you are so different and so gifted in so many different ways, and how, how many of you guys serve and lead in so many diverse areas in the church as well. When you look at this passage, you see people who served as Paul's messengers. You see his fellow preachers who served alongside him. You see a devoted prayer, prayer warrior. You see a former slave. You see a rich matriarch of a household. And you have people who once walked away from the faith, but have now come back to the faith. All these people had their different giftings and personalities, and yet God put them together. The body of Christ isn't diverse for diversity's sake. The body of Christ is diverse because we serve a God who welcomes all and is building a diverse team of people who can proclaim his love to the world. You all play a part on this team. And one of the biggest myths that we have in the church today is that the pastor and the church staff are the team. You pay us to go out and do stuff. And there's a part of that that's true, a very small part. But Paul tells the Ephesian church that the, that the purpose of pastors and teachers and other ministers in the body is to equip you for the work of ministry. It's to equip you to love God more. It's to equip you to flourish in your gifts that God has given you. It's our job to equip you to do the work of gospel ministry. We are all a part of this team, guys. And the team has only one purpose, and it's to proclaim the gospel. You look at this ragtag group of disciples that Paul mentions. They're all sold out for this one goal. And that's to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You look at everything that they do. All the 
pieces that they're playing to proclaim the gospel. Some are messengers. Some are embodied testimonies to God's grace. Some are diehard prayer warriors. This is a team with purpose, folks. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm just a volunteer Sunday school teacher. What can I do for the kingdom? How important am I to this team? There was once a volunteer Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball who taught a bunch of really rowdy dudes. And Kimball would always pray that these dudes would get past themselves, stop thinking about themselves, and start thinking more about Jesus. And one time Kimball felt led by the Spirit to go and visit one of these young men at a shoe shop where he worked on a random Saturday. So Kimball walks up to this kid and says, It is of eternal importance that you come to know Jesus today. And after some intense conversation, this kid came to know Jesus. And that young man's name was D.L. Moody. who was one of the greatest evangelists of all time. And Moody went on to preach the gospel here in the States and here in the U.K., including to a man named Wilbur Chapman, who came to know Christ and preached the gospel to a man named Billy Sunday, who preached the gospel to a man named Mordecai Ham, who in turn would lead a young man named Billy Graham to the Lord. It all started because a Sunday school teacher got annoyed that his students didn't know Jesus. You all have a role to play in this story of redemption and restoration. Some of us have smaller roles. Some of you will have bigger roles. It doesn't matter in God's kingdom. As long as you're doing what he's gifted you to do, you're doing your part to proclaim the gospel. It could be leading a missional community like we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. It could be helping out in Sunday school. It could be anything. But whatever you're gifted in, use it as a means to share the gospel with others. Because together we achieve excellence. And apart, we achieve mediocrity. That's an acronym for team, if you didn't notice. I didn't want to use together everyone achieves more because that's kind of cliche. So Paul couldn't spread the gospel by himself. And neither can I. And neither can you. But together, we can achieve anything. But we need to stand together. And that means gossip. It means unforgiveness has no place in the body of Christ. Because when we stand apart, we're not living in light of the gospel. In fact, we're denying the power of the gospel. Because the gospel is good news about love and about forgiveness. And when we don't exemplify those things, our witness for Christ, any sort of witness we had for Christ is done. We need to stand together as a church and as the universal body of Christ in order to best reflect God's love for this world. And as we close out our series of the book of Colossians, I just want to remind you of one thing, that it all begins with Christ. Above all else, Christ comes first. Not your work, not even your family. We need to put Christ first. Just as the Colossians had so many different kinds of challenges to their faith, so do we have so many voices and idols that are competing for our hearts. But we need to stand together because not only does this world need to come to Jesus, 
but we also need to have our eyes fixed solely on him. And that's what we do when we celebrate communion. We remember all that Christ has done for us, all that he is doing for us, and all that he will do for us. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And in a few moments, we're going to invite you to come here, take a piece of bread which represents the broken body of our Lord, and dip it into the cup which represents his shed blood as well. And just remember, as we're coming up here, as we're taking communion together, that this is a diverse body, that this is a diverse people that God has put together. We're all one in the body of Christ. We're all family. doesn't matter where you came from as long as you claim the name of Jesus Christ. We're in this together. Amen? We need to proclaim the gospel together because together we achieve excellence for Christ and apart we don't achieve much. Will you stand with me as I pray?